Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of the Next Byte Podcast. Today on the show, a breakthrough in 3D printing organs, how AI can tell you what songs you really like, and lastly, the latest weather monitoring satellite from NASA JPL. I'm Daniel. And I'm Forbode. And this is the Next Byte Podcast. Every week, we explore interesting and impactful tech and engineering content from Weevolver.com and deliver it to you in bite-sized episodes that are easy to understand, regardless of your background. So Dan, let's go ahead and get started. We got article one. We're gonna be talking about a research that's coming out of Carnegie Mellon's biomedical and material science uh, departments by Dr. Adam Feinberg and his team. I don't know if you knew this, I didn't know this, but apparently printing soft polymers has been like a really hot topic for the biomedical engineering realm. And there's been a lot of issues because because the material is soft in itself, it can't support as it's printing and going up, so the full design is never accomplished. To remedy this, Dr. Feinberg and his team came up with a new method called freeform reversible embedding of suspended hydrogels. That's fresh, if you were wondering. That is so fresh. <laughs> I knew you'd like it. So the idea behind Fresh is that you can take a hydrogel, use standard 3D printing techniques, and inject the soft polymer all throughout to get the design that you want. And the hydrogel will do, is gonna do the supporting job in this technique. So once you're done printing, you take it to another station and you want to take that, uh, the soft polymer and actually make it a solid object. So they, they used a UV light to treat the material and accomplish what they wanted to do. And then lastly, you want to melt away the hydrogel that's been doing all the supporting using some sort of heat source. So let me see if I've got this right. Okay. Uh, they've got this bio ink, which is the precursor material to the soft printed tissue that they want to make as the end result. Right. And they have this gel that supports the bio ink. So when they inject it in, the ink's not sloshing around or moving or anything. So it stays where it's supposed to be. Then they shine a UV light on it, which helps the bio ink turn from liquid to the squishy tissue-like substance that we're looking for. And then they use heat to melt away all the gel that was supporting it, and then they're left with their 3D printed heart or kidney or whatever their goal was to print. You got it. Awesome. And now, this is what I thought was probably the most interesting part, is the bio ink they're using is called alginate. Alginate is derived from seaweed, and seaweed is, one, very easy to grow, it's cheap, it's good for the oceans, and it's good for the environment because it helps getting rid of that some of that excess carbon that is in the atmosphere. So that was really cool to see. And now moving on to the actual application of it, apparently surgeons have been 3D printing hearts using MRI scans. It gives them a better idea of what they're going to be working with, and they can kind of show the patient and walk them through. But because more often than not, 3D printing materials are pretty tough. They can't really get much practice. Now, Dr. Feinberg and his team with this research have completely changed the game. They can 3D print hearts, show it to the patient, and the surgeon can get some practice. Like they can print like three or four, kind of run through what they want to do and see if there's any complications that they think is going to happen and then catch it earlier on. Before they open you up, they actually can do the surgery like a mock surgery to make sure that they're going to do the best job possible. That's really interesting. I didn't know that you know, I guess it makes sense when you go in to get a really critical surgery, they take enough MRIs of you that they should be able to piece it together and make right? the 3D model. Yeah. So it makes sense that now using this technology from Dr. Feinberg and his team, they can 3D print a soft heart that 
is not only the same shape as your heart, but also a similar consistency with the tissue. That seems like a great way for these surgeons to practice. Absolutely. Absolutely. And now and another thing to point out is that these organs actually aren't functional. But both the MRI and the 3D printing technology, they've been able to display that they're pretty accurate. They actually passed some synthetic blood through one of the uh, arteries that they printed. And they made a note that although it's not functional yet, this is a great step towards creating those 3D printing um, organs that are fully functional, not just hearts. It could be kidneys or whatever. Okay, so right now their bioink is based on algae. It's the right material properties, the you know, right viscosity and consistency to be human tissue, but it's not actually living human tissue. Right. But right. their platform will work just as well if we get a good bioink that we can actually print human tissue with. You got so, it right. That's pretty cool. I think this is interesting. Hopefully, I don't need open heart surgery in the next few months. But if I do, I'd feel a lot more confident if the surgeon had practiced on a soft, squishy, 3D printed version of my heart. I would too. Does this cost a lot? Like, I'd hope that any hospital can access this technology. And that's that's the interesting thing. When I was reading this article, I thought that maybe they created some like one-off instrument that could do all this. But apparently, they just took like a printer that I'm pretty sure you can find from Amazon. And then did a little bit of tweaking with the software, a little bit of custom hardware. But for the most part, it's very, very affordable. And as I mentioned earlier, the alginate itself is very affordable as well. So the whole process, I could definitely see this being an equipment that most hospitals can have if they just incorporate this technique. That's really fascinating. And I think this is a great application of where technology meets human biology and making a great new thing. And I think that's a great way to bridge over to our next article, which is, again, at the intersection of human biology and technology. And it's from a Ph.D. researcher from the land down under at Australian National University, Miss Jessica Sharmin Rahman. And her research is about how where music meets A.I. and figuring out whether listening to Justin Bieber is actually good for you. And if you're wondering where her research question came from, so was I. And I actually think it's a really, really interesting story to tell. So Miss Rahman hated Justin Bieber. She didn't like his music. You can say she was the antithesis of a believer. She caught herself listening to Love Yourself, Justin Bieber's smash hit, for the first time. And her body had a great positive response to it. She got chills, she was enjoying the music, and then once she saw that it was Justin Bieber, she was super curious about how her body could subconsciously enjoy a certain type of music that consciously she didn't really think she liked. Um, so for after years of research, she's developed an AI model that can detect two things about your music listening experience. One, the genre of music that you're listening to, and two, how it makes you feel. And the only inputs that it needs to find out those two things is a few physiological responses to your body. So what, what is this physiological response that the model needs? It's a great question. It's right where I was going next. So they only track three things, which is pretty impressive. They only track your brain waves, so the activity okay. and the patterns of neurons firing in your brain. The second thing they track is they put a sticker on your sweat glands to see how much sweat is coming out, the perspiration rate. And the last thing they okay. check also can be integrated with that sticker and they just track the heart rate in your body. So between brain waves, sweat glands, and heart rate, they can tell with a 96% accuracy what genre of music you're listening to and how it makes you feel. So Dan, what, the, these indicators that you just mentioned, I'm assuming 
the subjects have to be in a controlled environment, right? Because if I'm seeing like flashing lights or if I'm watching a scary movie, I'm probably going to sweat more. My heart rate's going to go up. My brain activity is going to amplify. Is that correct? Yeah. So it was a pretty pristine uh, clinical environment, let's say, when they did this testing. So, you know, they made sure that they weren't watching any videos or anything. They made sure that they restricted extra movements so their heart rate wouldn't go up. And then they also wore noise-canceling headphones. So they could be sure that the patients, the only thing that they were listening to was the test music. Gotcha. That being said, it's still really impressive that with 96% accuracy, they were able to suggest songs that the patients would enjoy without knowing their previous music preferences. And Ms. Rahman has actually found a really great functional application for this today, which I didn't know about is treating epilepsy. There's a certain subset of people with epilepsy that is actually triggered by music. And I wasn't, I wasn't aware of that before. I wasn't either. Wow. But so some of these people have epilepsy and their seizures are triggered by listening to certain genres of music. And so Ms. Rahman has found two uh, potential applications for these patients with epilepsy. And the first one she says is therapeutic. So helping these people that, you know, have a love-hate relationship with music, essentially, help them to enjoy music, increase their joy, reduce the stress by suggesting songs for them that their body will truly react positively to. And on the flip side of that, it's kind of mysterious to some of these patients with epilepsy what types of music trigger trigger their epilepsy. So she says it can also be used as a diagnostic tool by tracking the body's physical response to find exactly which genres these folks with epilepsy are having a negative reaction to. Now, Dan, uh, it, it looks like there's a very direct therapeutic application for this technology, but as it matures, I could for sure see this like playing into the, for example, like the Apple ecosystem where you have the Apple watch that's like reading how much you're sweating, your heart rate and things like that. And then you have the Apple music app where you're like listening to music. Maybe like it could be like, oh, like it looks like for Bode or Dan is having like a really tough day. They're very stressed out. What if I put together an entire playlist that just like mellows them? I think that's a perfect end game application for this type of technology. Um, Right at the intersection of wearables, which already track some of these physiological responses that are mentioned in the research. And then what music you're listening to, any company that can combine the two. A great one I think of is Spotify, in addition to Apple that you mentioned. I'm already impressed by Spotify's ability to suggest songs and playlists to me that I'll enjoy purely based off my listening history. So I think if they were also given this algorithm, which is already super powerful, to combine the two to suggest me the perfect playlist for Daniel based on the way my body responds to music, based on my listening history, they could, I think, with pretty decent accuracy, probably provide a podcast or a song or something to me, a playlist that is... Basically, every single thing on the list makes me happy, which I'm really looking forward to. Sign me up for that. I would love something like that. And you know, hey, speaking of apps, to our listeners, if you've been enjoying these episodes, we would really, really appreciate it if you just took a moment out of your day, opened up your favorite podcast app, and just left us a review. It really helps the show grow, and it just helps us to know what to deliver on a week-to-week basis so that we can be the best that we can possibly be for you guys. And now... And since we're on the topic of apps, we're going to be talking about something related to the weather app. This is Article 3, the latest uh, satellite coming out of NASA's JPL. It is called the Sentinel-6. The purpose of the Sentinel-6 mission is to get a better idea of how our oceans are changing and how that's going to affect humanity. 
So the Sentinel-6 has some really cool gadgets equipped to it that's going to be able to get a very accurate idea of what's happening at the sea surface level. Apparently, older satellites kind of give you like half the picture of what's going on. So the Sentinel-6 has a microwave radiometer that's getting an idea of the EM uh, electromagnetic radiation that's bouncing off of the sea surface. And it also has a radar altimeter, which is getting the distance between the satellite and the ocean surface. So you're kind of getting data about the waves and you're getting about like a heat map of what's going on and putting it together to get a pretty accurate idea of how our oceans are changing. So let me get this right. This sure. Freilich Sentinel-6 seems like a really complex machine, but what it comes down to is they really have two sensors on there that are the secret sauce. And one of them is the microwave radiometer, which tracks electromagnetic radiation. If you don't know, EM radiation is basically heat. So they're able to get a heat map of what's happening on the ocean. And the second sensor that they have on there is a radar altimeter, which allows them to track the height of the waves, the patterns of the waves. So between those two, do they get a complete picture of what's going on weather-wise at the coastline? They do. The coastline is exactly the part that they were looking for because previous, like, imaging techniques and just um, measurement techniques don't really give you a big idea of what's going on, like a precise idea of what's going on at the coastlines. But these two together really fill in that picture. So Dan, another thing that was actually interesting is that this uh, satellite is going to take advantage of something called radio occultation. Basically, whenever the Sentinel-6 sees another satellite, usually a navigation satellite that we have tons and tons of in space, either below or above um, its horizontal, like with respect to Sentinel-6, it can either send like a signal or receive a signal, and that signal will pass through the atmosphere. As it passes through the atmosphere, an effect happens called uh, refraction, and the scientists are able to use this and backtrack using an algorithm to what the conditions in the atmosphere at that time are like. So we're talking temperature, moisture, atmospheric density, things like that. Okay, that makes sense. So they've got multiple satellites in space, and once one of them dips below the horizon past the curve of the Earth, and sorry, flat earthers, yes, the Earth is round, once the other satellites dip below the curve of the Earth, they can shoot signals through there and measure how much they bend, kind of like light bends through a prism, that's called refraction. They measure how much it it bends, and that gives them an idea of the different qualities of the air inside the atmosphere. You hit it right on the head. That's exactly what's going on. Awesome. So what's interesting about this, you know, going back to the weather app, is that in the short term, this satellite is going to give us much more accurate weather data. But the real big mission here is to understand they want to get a decade's worth of data about how our oceans are changing and how that's affecting us. So the Sentinel-6 actually has a sibling. It's going to do a decade-long mission, gather all this data, and come back so that not just NASA JPL, by the way, this is an international effort with the European Space Agency, they can get together, analyze what's going on, and talk about doing things to prevent further, you know, um, damage to the oceans and the sea levels that are rising. I think this is an awesome effort. So I am really excited about how in the short term we'll get more accurate weather forecasting from it. But also in the long term, between this satellite and its sister satellite, uh, the two of them that go up will collect decades worth of data and give us an accurate picture of what's going on over time. You know, are the sea levels rising? How much are they rising? due to global warming, and how will that impact human population moving forward? And a really, really important note that I think is cool to pick on there is you mentioned it quickly, that it's an international effort. For such an important problem, it's exciting to me that we've got people from all over the world working on it. Absolutely. Science knows no bounds. 
Our problems knows no bounds. It does not know state lines or nation lines. So it's good that we can all come together and work towards a single unified goal. I agree. And I think that's a great way actually to wrap up the podcast. Couldn't agree more. Thank you, everyone. See you next week. That's all for today. The Next Byte Podcast is produced by Weevolver. And to learn more about the topics we discussed today, visit Weevolver.com. If you enjoy this episode, please review and subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or one of your favorite platforms. I'm Forbode. And I'm Daniel. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.